All right, good morning. All right, good morning. It's good to see you. Hey, if you have a Bible or device that you use, we're going to be in Ephesians 1 again today. So turn to Ephesians 1. This is going to be the the main passage that lifts the most weight for us. We'll use a few others, um, and I will flash them up on the screen. But that will be the one that will be where you're going to want to camp out. It's going to be the most helpful. If if you weren't here with us last week, or maybe you're kind of newish to Legacy, we started a series last week, we're very fresh into it, called Coram Deo. It's really our look at the book of Ephesians. We're traveling passage by passage through the entire book of Ephesians. I think it's our seventh book of the Bible to do this with. I'm very excited about this particular study. I mean, Ephesians is a favorite for a lot of people. Coram Deo, however, is a new word for many people, right? Corum, it just means face-to-face in Latin. Deo means God. So the idea behind Corum Deo is a face-to-face relationship with God, a relationship where we are in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God at all times. This occurs because the gospel of God for mankind, the good news for mankind through the person of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, it changes us. It changes us from the inside out affecting every sphere of our lives, right? So whether you are a stay-at-home mom or a student or maybe you are an engineer, whether you work, whether you play, it doesn't matter. When you live a Coram Deo lifestyle, everywhere you go and everything you do is done through the grid of what God has done for you, right? Coram Deo living is also living a life of enjoying God as he is, not as we want him to be. And we're going to encounter that in today's passage. So let's look at Ephesians 1, and you'll see what I'm talking about. We're going to be in verse 3, and we're going to read to verse 14. So this is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Listen, there's a principle called the Goldilocks principle. It's going to be intuitively easy for you to understand what this principle is because it crosses a bunch of different industries. Um, It is the idea that there is a happy medium in between what is too hot and what is too cold, right? There's always a just right, depending on what industry you're in. So um, biology, if you're thinking biologically, there might be a temperature that is perfect for an organism to live. You could get too hot or you could get too cold, but there is a perfect medium, right? If you have a thermostat in your house and multiple people that live with you, you know that this is true, right? There's a Goldilocks principle. But in economics, you have the same thing. You can underprice something, and you can definitely overprice something, right? Communication, what I'm doing right now, has a Goldilocks principle attached to it. That's why whenever we give the announcements a little bit later on, announcements are actually an art form. Because you can overdo announcements and sound like a public service announcement, right? And everybody turns you off and nothing gets communicated. But if you under-announce something, then you're not leading people to see values. No one's able to understand what's going on. There is a happy medium, right? So the Goldilocks principle, it also stands true with our view of God and his size. We're going to talk about the size of God a little bit today, right? And the more I understand Coram Deo living... It means wrestling through hard truths, which we're going to tackle today, right? I mean, listen, part of the benefit of being in a church where you're going to go from passage to passage to passage to passage means I can't skip the hard stuff. Today is going to be proof of that, right? Coram Deo living means wrestling through hard truths, but still landing at a place of total worship and total trust. And I think one of the things that we wrestle with is part of God's church is that God is Very big, and he's big enough to beat things like death and destruction, but it feels, seemingly, it feels like he's too small to stop a flood or a child's deformity. So some of us will ask with our heart, if God is so big, why isn't he big when I want him to be big, says the person where God is too small. Others say if God is in total control, in control of everything, then maybe my decisions don't even matter. And that's where Goldilocks says God is too big. But if we were to step into the shoes of Goldilocks, how big is your God today? How big? And are you okay with his size? And has God's size affected how you live today? These are going to be big questions for us because today Paul speaks to this young church in Ephesus about God's sovereign steering of mankind, even our salvation. And this is meant to build trust and worship in us. That's what he's really trying to do here. But I think whenever we think about God's size, instead of landing at a place of trust and a place of worship and a, just, just total relenting of our control and our judgment, often what times I see is people distrust and find disgust with God because he is just far too big. I mean, even in the passage that we just read, it's an interesting passage, but it's full, isn't it? 11 verses, but there's a lot there. In the Greek language, this is one sentence, which if you follow Paul at all, totally makes sense. He is speaking over 200 words in the Greek right here, and he's not even taking a breath. In fact, Greek scholars say it is hard to find this long of a sentence in all of Greek literature, not just in the Bible, but in all of Greek literature. He is caught up in the moment, right? There are days I get home from a long day, 
And my youngest, my little girl, she greets me at the door, and she is so excited to tell me about everything that happened that day. And she just starts, and I mean, I know it's more than 200 words, and she won't take a breath because I can see it in her eyes. She knows as soon as she takes a breath, she loses me, and she doesn't want to risk losing my attention, so she just keeps talking. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's caught up in what he's saying. And it's not just a big sentence, it's a psalm. This is the longest psalm in the New Testament. And Paul's not arguing, he's not rebuking, he's not touching controversy, he's communicating lyrically, right? And there are some weighty truths in these lyrics. Just the ones that stand out. God has given every child that he has every spiritual gift every spiritual blessing from the heavenlies, all of them. And he so deemed to do that before the foundations of creation were laid. That we know. One of these blessings was his Holy Spirit, who he gave us as a seal and an authentication and a guarantee forever for us. That's a couple big truths. Another one that we see is that before we even look towards God and place our gaze upon God, he already gazed upon us. Before you even had a chance to to, to look at you. The guilt on your hands, the blood on your hands, and say, oh my God, what have I done? God has looked at you and said, you I choose. That's a little bit of a tougher truth. And then another one we see is that all things in heaven and on earth, even your salvation. All things in heaven and on earth, even your salvation, work toward his glory perfectly by his plan according to the strength of his will. Now, a lot of these truths make waves. (laughs) They're... Pretty controversial, but there is one that causes more struggle in us than others, and that is God's size. He just feels uncomfortably big in this, doesn't he? He feels uncomfortably big. I mean, this passage contains one of the strongest statements of God's sovereignty in all of the Bible. And listen, if you're not familiar with what that means, sovereign or sovereignty, it just means supremely powerful with no challenger, no consultant, no advisor, and no one getting in your way. That's what it means to be sovereign. And I think when it comes to God, we're okay with God being sovereign on paper. I think it's easier for us to say, well, of course he's sovereign. He's God. He created the cosmos. So, of course, God is sovereign. But whenever we think that he chooses some and does not choose others, then we say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't know if my God is that big. I don't know if he's that big. The Goldilocks principle starts to show up. You see, the idea contained in this passage is that God chose a plan after deliberating wisely with himself (laughs) on the best course of action to accomplish his own purpose, that he decided himself, which is well beyond what we can understand and comprehend. God predestines the elect, and it is his good pleasure to do so. It is his pleasure to do this. Hear me, this is a mystery. There is mystery in this that we will never understand. But there is some clarity given to us that we can understand. So I'm going to be careful. I'm going to be as helpful as I can where the Bible is clear. But I'm not going to work really hard to dig the mechanics of the mystery out of God's sovereignty. I think that could be irresponsible. But where it is clear, we see that the Bible is really a book of election all the way through. The idea of God choosing people according to his plan for his glory, that's not a new idea. I mean, just consider, if you were to just travel through the storyline of the Bible, I mean, he chose and elected to create the world, to create all of creation. That was his idea. 
He didn't need any consult from mankind. He didn't go to the angels dragging his big whiteboard with him, looking to collaborate and create a feedback loop and see what the fellas thought. That's not how that went down. He had a design. He deliberated with himself. No one was wise enough to even have counsel with him on that. He chose to do it. We see him later on choosing Noah. Choosing Noah from among a bunch of pagan people. Not because Noah was a superstar, by the way. Because he was not. He selected Noah because he saw fit to do it. Abraham, very similarly, not too far after that, selected out of a pagan nation so that that he would be a blessing to other nations for the glory of God. But it's very similar. I mean, Abraham was worshiping the moon whenever God called on him. That was the predominant worship of that region at the time. So God selected him and not his neighbor, even though they were both worshiping the moon. It's not like Abraham was a Christian before God called him. He just did it because he saw fit. God chose Israel as a nation to be a light to all other nations. Right? He could have chosen any nation if you think about it, but he chose a nation that wouldn't even choose him back a lot of times because he saw fit. God selects David from among his brothers to lead a nation for God's glory. And listen, if you go back in the Old Testament and kind of track through that little passage where Samuel is going from brother to brother to brother and landing on David at the very end, you kind of get the feeling that David didn't have the best ACT score out of that crew, right? (laughs) You get that feel that if you had his Meyer Briggs or his DISC score up there, it didn't say supreme leader of God's people anywhere near it. Listen, I was always chosen very close to last in dodgeball or kickball or whatever not sport that we made up in middle school or elementary school. I was rarely picked last, but I was always picked close enough to last to be always scared every time there was picking for teams, right? Like, oh gosh, this is the day. This is the day they pick me last again, you know? That's what I see when I see that passage. David's last. And God selected him because he saw fit. God and Jesus chose 12 disciples for his glory. Hear me clearly. There were better leaders of the day at that time. There were better TED Talkers during the time. There were more influential, powerful, entrepreneurial Elon Musks of the day. And yet, Jesus chose these guys, fishermen. I bet there were better fishermen at the day. He chose them. God is always saying that he chooses what is insignificant. Why? So that none of us can boast. He selects, he chooses, and we benefit. And that's because it's his brilliant plan to do so. And he sees fit. You see, the Bible is full of these moments where God selects and chooses one over another. We see it all the way through. And we don't have to be afraid of this truth. Listen, we don't have to be ashamed of it either. We don't have to be silent about it but it does require us to be humble. We do need to be humble about it, and we ought to be drawn and enchanted into worship over this. I mean, it's hard, though. I mean, this doctrine of predestination and election and sovereignty, I mean, man, it's a powder keg, isn't it? It has divided Christians for ages, and today is not my attempt to step into the middle of that civil war and solve it for everybody. I can't do that, and really, it's not my goal. And by the way, please don't email this to me, uh, what your opinion is on this, and I'm not going to read your favorite book to dissuade me from this. I, I get it. I understand where the controversy is. In fact, for the first 12 years of being a pastor, I was not big on this doctrine, and I was on the other side. In fact, my Goldilocks principle had God quite a bit smaller. Quite a bit smaller. And I'll tell you why. 
I struggled with the idea that God would select me and not my neighbor. I liked my neighbor. He was pretty cool. He was nice. He's a nice guy. He, he liked me. He seemed genuine. I didn't like that. It didn't seem fair to me. Also, it felt too much like God was removing my free will from the process, like I was stuck on some rail I couldn't get off. Didn't make sense to me. So this doctrine would make me twist inside. It wouldn't lead me to worship. So I think Paul's goal here is to steer us through that. And so I always tell people as my biblical comprehension would start to grow and I could see Jesus more clearly, this is part of my testimony is I would see my, my God grow in size. He grew. As I saw him as sovereign, I saw him as huge. And the only appropriate response I could have is just to stop, drop, and worship. Just to love him deeply. So listen, I'm aware that some of you in the room, you probably don't struggle with these doctrines at all, right? The idea of sovereignty is not a struggle for you, but I'm still going to push a question on you. Does it lead you to worship? Does it lead you to worship? Or are you so familiar with sovereignty that you don't just crumple inside and cry out and dream and worship and cry and thanks and move face to face with God? Because if it's not moving to you to that place, you're likely not understanding what sovereignty is. I mean, familiarity, it could do a lot of things, but it could definitely cause a slumber of the imagination. It can cause a slumber of our passion. Because I know people in this room, they've come from great backgrounds, from traditions and churches that have guarded these doctrines like sovereignty, taking good care of them, yet to little no effect in you if it's not moving you to a quorum deo lifestyle. You see, when the size of your God grows, then the power of the cross, the effectiveness of the blood, the victory from the tomb, it takes its rightful size whenever our God is big. But a small view of God renders a very small cross with probably not much blood on it. And the empty tomb is a little bit of an asterisk, right? A little bit of a footnote. And so then what we have is a small life of worship. So you might be in the room with a theologically big God. But if you're not blown away by that, then functionally he's still small. Theologically big, functionally very small. So consider that. But I do think there's a lot of people that are struggling with the idea that God elects some over others. And so what I'm going to do is try to use a picture not made famous by me, but made famous by other theologians, one in particular, H.A. Ironside. And he puts it in a way that I think will be helpful for us to have a meeting in a school. Imagine a long hallway like the one right out there. It's wide, it's got a lot of doors, the doors are big, there's lots of people rushing through the, the hall, and they're, they're following their own desires, they're doing what they want to do, they're going in right, they're going in left, they're going wherever they want to go, but no one's forcing them to make the decisions of where they go, no one's coercing them, they're going where they want to go, their minds are fixed. Now I want you to imagine a door in the midst of all of those doors, it's more narrow, and it has a message on top of it that says real life is in here and anyone and everyone is welcome and invited. Okay? There's no restrictions, just an open invitation. It would be odd at that point, if we could imagine a person stopping in front of a door like that and saying, I don't know about going in there. I might not be elect. I might not be chosen to go in there. And then at that point, what would be useless for me to walk through there? You see, if some refuse and continue to pursue their own goals, who can they blame but themselves? Because the invitation is sincere. It's open. It's addressed to all. 
And we see this in Revelation 22. We could throw this up on the screen. You could stay in the passage you're in now. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So we, we see here that the message comes to all. The door could be entered by all, but many will refuse to come in. And such people that refuse to go in that narrow door declaring life, they cannot blame God for their destruction because that door was opened, the invitation was given, it was sincere, but they refused according to their own free will. Okay? Now, imagine someone standing in front of that door, seeing the narrow door, seeing the message, and something happens in their heart. And they say to themselves, man, I really need life because this life I'm living here, it's just not satisfying. I'm just not satisfied with this life. And I think there's something in there. And I can feel God changing my heart. I can feel like a draw. And I'm trusting this thing called the gospel. So trusting the message, this person enters the room and entering the narrow door, they close it behind them, turn around only to find another declaration above the door that says chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's where our hearts go silly. That's with what we struggle with, that second declaration. And I remember struggling myself, thinking, man, okay, you mean to tell me that I become a Christian at the age of 20 and had a bunch of experience in history before that and God knew the whole time that I was going to walk towards him here but he had already had his eyes set on me? Is that what you're telling me? You mean when I hated God, he still already had his gaze fixed on me? When I was searching for truth behind every dumb rock or every dumb idea, or every girl, or bottle, or whatever. I mean, I was looking for truth anywhere, and he already was patiently set up his affection on me. That's what you mean to tell me. When I was mocking him and his people, he wasn't frustrated? He wasn't intimidated by that? Man, that's, that's tough. You see, you could pass the door if you want. Most people do, but if you do, and you race past the narrow door, you're responsible for your own doom. Hear me clearly. Because God does not force us to make mechanical decisions. We don't have these cold, forced, robotic decisions that we make. Nobody makes decisions like that. When you make decisions, you don't feel coerced. We do what we want. The human heart wants what the human heart wants. For decades, I walked past that door because I decided I wanted to walk past that door. It was my own free will. Until that fall in 1996, on that Monday, in that living room in that city in West Texas. Then, according to God's brilliant architecture of time and space, I trusted his gospel. And when I did that, I was entering something that he already orchestrated since before light was even light. And that just breaks me inside. That really breaks me inside. I chose him with the depth of my being, and he already had his hand on my shoulder, and both those statements can be true. Of course, there's where we start touching some of the mystery, right? It shouldn't scare you, though. It should draw you to glorify God in a very robust, unashamed, and thoughtful praise. But I think what does scare us and gives us pause is because it seems like it, theology like this, it removes a level of control from us. It removes control from us. Here is where God feels like he's just a bit too big for many people. 
We might actually be okay with him rescuing us when all we do is contribute our need, but we're not okay with him not doing that for our neighbor. And listen, hear me, if that's true in you, and it's likely true in you, part of that is God's design, because you are made in God's image, right? So you're going to have just a value for those who are in God's image. And the idea that, that somebody is receiving justice and another person is receiving grace or mercy, that might seem like an imbalance to you, right? That part of that is your design. But whenever we take our stunted understanding of that and we elevate it and move it above God's glory and his judgment and his sovereignty, that's where we sin. That's where we've crossed this line because it just doesn't seem fair to us that we would receive grace while another receives justice. Hear me, this is a natural struggle for you to have. And I'll say to a certain extent, it's a healthy struggle for you to have. It's healthy. This is a bridge you should be crossing. Because on the other side of that theological bridge, it means you putting things down. It means you relenting and submitting and trusting. That's why it's healthy. That's why Paul's doing this. I mean, he's not in this passage as some theological nerd combing over these hypothetical situations that no one cares about with other theological nerds. He's not doing that. He's driving people to see God's immense glory through the picture of election and God's sovereignty. I like how Leon Morris says it. He says it much better than I do. He says, we shouldn't see predestination as a grim process whereby God condemns great numbers of people to eternal loss. Rather, it's the outworking of a loving purpose whereby he delivers great numbers of people for salvation. All right? But some of you are still throwing a flag. You should. Because it still sounds mechanistic and cold, doesn't it? Still sounds a little robotic. Come on, Luke. I mean, even our decisions are determined. I mean, sure, I decided, Luke. I made a, a guttural decision, and it was a, it was a genuine bun, but it doesn't even sound like I could have gone any other way. Sounds like I was forced, even though I didn't feel forced. So let me just remind you of a couple quick truths that you should always keep in your hip pocket whenever that lie comes. And one is that we all make unforced decisions, and we're all responsible for the decisions that we make. We're responsible for the fallout of the decisions that we make freely. And you know this to be true. Listen, today at 2 o'clock, not too far from here, there's going to be a pie contest, right? <laughs> and listen, by the way, if you haven't registered for that, you can still come. Just come and show up, right? We need judges. Come and eat pie. You're just going to go home and watch Netflix anyway. It's raining outside, so you might as well just come and eat pie. But when you do walk in there and there's tables full of different pies, everybody's secret recipe from grandma, all these great pies, you're going to have some decisions to make. You can either go the chocolate slash fudge slash coffee route, or you could go like the more fruitish route, right? More traditional route. You can go with the more custard filled, with the more fruit filled. You have decisions to make, and there are ramifications to those decisions. You can make the wrong decision, right? Which is why if you're like me, you'll get both, right? You'll get both and hedge your bets. But even that's a decision that you have free will to make. You decided to get two pieces of pie. And you'll pay the price for that decision, right? <laughs> you'll enjoy it then. You'll pay the price later. 
Last year, I was on this strict diet, man. I would not bank from. I love that diet. I must have had 58 pieces of pie that day. I totally came off of that diet, and I'm likely to do the same thing today. But if I do, I'm making that decision. What I'm trying to say is this. Nobody sits down with Amanda Simmons' award-winning chocolate coffee pie. Nobody does that and starts eating it and says, I didn't even want to eat this dumb pie. I felt coerced the whole time. I don't even know what came over me. I got that pie, didn't even want it, stuck it on the plate, and here I'm eating it, and I'm really upset about it. Nobody says that. We all make unforced decisions, and we all pay the price for them. The second truth is we don't even have the bearing. We can't sit on the perch that judges the judge accurately. We can't do that. We don't have the bearing for this, the perspective. We don't even have the right to consult someone like God himself. But still, this struggle that you have theologically, it's not, it's not something that just you have. I mean... Paul had the same struggle. So did the church in Rome. That's why he speaks to it. So we'll put this up on the screen, but in the book of Romans in chapter 9, this is Paul speaking. I'll start in verse 19. He says, You will say to me then, why does he, he meaning God, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's Paul tackling this hard truth. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even as whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. So we see something here, that God in his brilliance, above our comprehension, way above our pay grade, decided that many people will see destruction and some will receive mercy. All by his own will, all according to his own purpose, all that will bring a light to his glory in a way that he sees fit since before there was a before. Now friends, you have free will. So you could just come up with an opinion on that if you want. I don't like it, Luke. I got my own idea of how all that works out. You could come up with your own opinion that's different from this because it's your prerogative and your free will to do so. It just wouldn't be very wise. It'd be like a Labrador puppy saying, you know, I think I'm going to think and consider and and weigh in on the value of organic chemistry in the oil industry. Or maybe I'd like to think about and kind of contribute why I think art is more important in this country or seen differently in this country. Or maybe I'd like to speak out on the topic of safety and security and phone applications as time goes forward. I mean, a puppy could do that, but it's just going to sound a lot like barking to everybody else, right? And so goes it for mankind when we chirp about how God is unfair and brutal and unjust with the best that our three-pound fallen brain can come up with. We just, we're just barking. We're not on his level. We can't even, on a good day, do basic things here on earth. We're free to. It's just not wise. But this truth is rough with us, and it does something rough to us. And let me tell you why. This is the bottom line of why we struggle with this thing called sovereignty. We struggle because we struggle being chosen and owned by grace. That's hard for us. And you just don't have to look really hard to see it in the Word. I mean, just go to the garden. Go to the garden. 
We see it in mankind there. It's fight against being owned and chosen by grace. Craving independence, craving autonomy, rebelling. God chooses to make them out of his grace and goodwill, and his response is rebellion. That's his response. And it's a quick motion, too. This movement from being blessed and rebelling, it's rapid. It doesn't even take any thought. I mean, look at Exodus 32. We'll put that up on the screen, too. It's only six verses. But I think it pretty much captures everything we're trying to say. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Well done, right? And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt sacrifices and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, have you, have you ever gone like running in the rain before or just been in the rain to where you're soaked all the way through? The shoes are the problem, right? I mean, you could hang those jokers out for days and come back in a week, and they're still wet and not smelling great either, right? These guys, they still have wet clothes from the mist that came off of the wall of water that God made as he splits a sea open. They are still wet with the evidence of God's grace, and the first thing they do is rebel into independence. It's the first thing they do. Listen, the root of every sin you find yourself in any sin, things you do, things you don't do. Every sin you find yourself in is all bottled up in your dissatisfaction with God's love over you and his grace to you and your desire to rebel and be independent. It is all locked up in that. I mean, we read this passage, or maybe just I do. I read this passage in Exodus and I think, what a bunch of morons. I mean, now they get rebuked, right? They got a heavy spanking coming and they don't get those earrings back. Y'all notice that? <laughs> they lost all their gold. But listen, we do the same thing. We do the same thing, don't we? I'm no better than those people. God shows unmistakable grace, choosing, spilling his love upon us. I could rebel just as fast. So what do we do with this? That's what I'm trying to get to. What do we do? How does a sovereign God move us to enjoy him in worship? How can we wrestle with God, living a quorum Deo life. I think there's another event we need to look at and take a glance at. It's another event that God predestined in action for his glory and for your good where rebels are forgiven, and that is the cross. And I'm going to look at it through the angle of Acts 4.27. This will put up on the screen. Now, this is an interesting way to look at the cross because this is actually, the context of this is a prayer. This is a church praying, okay? For truly... The church says, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand 
and your plan had predestined to take place. So who put Jesus up on that cross exactly? Well, all these people he just named off. But it was according to his plan. He designed it. The cross that destroyed the perfect God-man was designed by God. Self-consulted, built into history at the perfect time, the perfect place, in front of the perfect people for his perfect will. And he had endless solutions, infinite possibilities before him. And he selects Jesus for this. And it was for the joy that was before Jesus that he crawled up on that cross and bled out to cover your sins, to take something that you should have had and give you something that he already had. I'll be honest with you. I don't know why God chose this particular way of doing it, full of blood and rejection and shame. I don't know. I don't, but I trust him. I trust that it was best and that it would ultimately unite all things to his glory because I'll tell you one thing I do personally know about God. What is clear to me is that he visits rebels and he recovers them, and that doesn't sound cold or mechanical to me at all. The story of God is full of passion and grit and emotion and miracle and wonder, and when faced with it, all I can do is relent and submit and fall and dream cry and thank. I think this is where Paul is leading in this text with his lyrical communication to us. It's for us to be postured likewise. And now we have this responsibility of pursuing holiness. And for this, he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, right? I'll just talk about one at the time I have left with you. And that's the Holy Spirit. I mean, you could go on and on with all the spiritual blessings, but what's interesting about the book of Ephesians is that of times that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament, one-fourth of them are in this book, right? About 60 times. And this is actually the first time we see it, and it's because the Holy Spirit is mentioned as a seal, a guarantee for us. And that was a common word in the Greek business world, right? We, we actually still do it today. It's just a down payment. It's a promise that I'm going to pay this level right here, but it is a guarantee and an authentication that I'm good to make the rest of the payments. I will finish what I've started. So by calling it such in this passage, it is Paul saying, God looking at you and God looking at me as his kids and saying, here you have the Holy Spirit, just so you know that I won't let you go. You have the Holy Spirit, Christian so that you know and have receipt that you will be kept forever. Jesus says forever, permanently indwelling believers. John 14, it'll be up on the screen. And I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That's your receipt. That's your seal. Listen, you cannot live a quorum Deo, face-to-face life with God and enjoy God without the Holy Spirit. I mean, God is most glorified in you and you are most satisfied in him and you'll never find satisfaction in God without the Holy Spirit leading you to that place. This is why this is so important. Enjoying God is what you were designed to do. I mean, since before there was a thing called light, God had already deemed beautiful that he would give his children his very own spirit to draw praise from them, knowing that that place was the most satisfactory, content, and beautiful place that that believer could ever be in. 
Your deepest satisfaction, your deepest contentment is found in this place of worship. And God has given you his spirit to enable that. And it is for your good and it's for his glory. So what do we do? What do we do when we see God's idea and we think it dumb? And we think our idea better, so we just defiantly disagree. What do we do when we start taking out our earrings and make our own gods and idols, thinking that we know better? I only have one application for us, and that is that we need to repent first and foremost. For really chasing our own glory and placing it above God's, we do ultimately want to consult God, don't we? We want to judge him, and we have to repent from that. Listen, not just repent for acting like a rebel, repent for having the heart of a rebel. And I'll just tell you real briefly, this is where I see it play out the most, or maybe the most firmly with believers as I talk to believers about this truth. It usually comes down to family and friends who are far from God that they love. You hear it too. I mean, I love them, and they're really great, and they love me, and they accept me for who I am. And man, I've known them for, since I was a little baby. The thought that God would not rescue them is we just can't have it. We can't make it compute that a loving God would do something like that. It's hard when it's your best friend, when it's your parents, hey, when it's your kids. It's hard. We want to consult. We know a better way. We got it figured out. We want to judge the great judge because we think that his plan is just cold. Again, friends, this is normal for you if you struggle with this. But we have to find a place of repentance whenever we have gotten to a place where we accuse God and have elevated ourselves above God. This is where sin started. When the serpent walks right up to Adam and says, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Can you hear what's behind that? Huh, sounds dumb, Adam. Doesn't sound like God has got a good grasp on justice or grace or mercy to me. You know who would do a good job at deciding that, Adam? I think you would. I think if you knew the difference between good and evil, I think you could cover that. I think your A game's probably better than his A game. See, this isn't a weakness we have. It's a sin we commit. It does require repentance. And then we have to petition the Holy Spirit to give us sight of God, that we would enjoy him. This is an important passage, and it's the last one I take you through. It's going to be in 1 Corinthians, and then we're out. 1 Corinthians, this is in the second chapter. It's only three verses. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Do you see what's going on here? We're talking about God giving you the Spirit that has plumbed the depths of his knowledge and experience from eons before eons. And that same Spirit has been given to you. Why? That you might understand the things freely given to you. That is how the Holy Spirit is a helper. That's how the helper helps. Draws us to the feet of God and gives us big eyes for what God has done for us, changing us forever and leading us into a quorum deo life. Enjoying God face to face. 
So yes, we ask the Holy Spirit to see this and to understand this, this ownership of grace over us. And listen, some things God will show you clarity on and some things he's gonna leave a mystery. But one thing the Holy Spirit will do is he will break you. He will break you and ruin you for anything besides worship and trust and relenting. Songs from your heart. Tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to switch gears here from a word given to you where you listen to a moment where you get to respond, right? So we'll have music that you can sing to, you can pray. We have communion elements in the back. We have, I mean, you can you give financially. You can, you can talk with someone that you've had an issue with. There's a lot of room. We do the best we can as a service at creating space for you to respond to God, right? When it comes to the table back there, when it comes to the communion elements, what you need to know is, if, especially if you're not familiar with such, that's something that we reserve for the church, capital C, not just legacy. But people who are Christians, if you are not a Christian, whether you're a skeptic or a searcher, we would just entreat you to take Jesus instead, right? And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But as you, whether you go by yourself or go with those around you to the table to take juice and bread, I'm going to load you up with a question to ask. Why did God choose me? Why did God choose me? Here's the answer you need to settle on. Because he loves you and it glorifies him. Totally despite you. Despite your worst performance and despite your best attempts. Because he loves you to his glory. pulls us into worship. The Father chose you. The Son redeems you. The Spirit seals you. The only appropriate response to that is worship. And we were made for this kind of worship. Communion is a moment where we lay down our rebellion because it's signature of Jesus laying down his life. Right? So if you grab that bread and you dip it in a little thing of juice and your view of God is small and fickle, you're just failing in the same way your first parents did. You're placing yourself above God and you need to repent in that moment. Make no mistake. It's a wrestling match, and this is a good place to wrestle. But the gospel entreats you to land in a place of worship because his ways are higher than your ways. His character is brighter than your character. His mind, his plan, they're much deeper. And listen, if you are far from Jesus, maybe like I said, you're searching. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you had something that happened at that one church camp at that one time, but you're not really sure anymore. You know, I mean, wherever you're at, but you, you know that you know that you do not have a firm step-in-step quorum deo life with God. Let me ask you, I'm going to load you with a different question. Not why did God choose me, but has God chosen me? That sounds a little bit more odd, I know. But I will repeat that invitation is sincere for you to walk through the door. It's open. It's without restriction. If you do not, your condemnation, the destruction, it's on your head. But if you do, you can rejoice that your name was written in the book of life since before seconds even began to tick. Right? Let me pray for all of you. And then they'll come out and lead us in worship. Father, we thank you for being so sweet to us and so kind to us. Father, I thank you that you considered us before we even knew what consideration was. And Lord, we repent as a church for approaching these things of mystery where we don't understand, just because we can't understand. Lord, I mean, to understand your ways would be to make us a God. That's what it would take. 
But Lord, we come to your mystery and we walk right up to it and then we, out of our own rebellious nature, say we know better and you're doing it wrong and you are cold and mechanical and I don't like it. And we build our own independence. And for that we repent. And Father, we beg your spirit to give us view of how beautiful your gospel is and what it has done for us. Lord, that we just can't go from day to day without just relishing on the fact of how, how thoughtful you were for us, totally despite us, that you rescued us just because you love us. And it's for your glory, and it is for your honor. So Lord, I pray that you break hearts in here, both hearts that need to repent and hearts that are coming to you. I pray that you would rend hearts, that you would pull hearts apart and take even dead hearts out and put live, responsive, beating hearts in people. Even today, that salvation would be found today. We love you, Lord, and you are so kind to us, and you are so good, and we, we trust you. We trust you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. On the cross, the empty tomb, the grace given to us, that we would gain sight of that. And Father, that we'd have a satisfaction that when we leave here today, it's not that we leave with an idea of what we need to try harder on or what we need to do better with, but we leave here with a sense of how awesome you are and how content we are in you, how satisfied we are in you. So we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we celebrate. Amen.